Amen. Thank you, Mr. Cobb. Good, good evening, church. And good to be good to be back with you this evening. How many of you got your afternoon nap in this afternoon? Just curious, anybody? Okay. Mom was replaced with a cup of coffee, and uh, it, it's just not as sweet, I can tell you that. Uh, but I just uh, enjoy those Sunday afternoon naps when you can get them, you know. So good to be with you today. I really mean that. This is a special place. I don't say that everywhere. This is a, a wonderful thing God is doing here. And uh, we just have enjoyed being in your presence today. We've enjoyed worshiping with you today. And uh, just so many things I could say about your church. Can I encourage you? I was just sitting there thinking, I would encourage you, get behind your pastor and go forward. Uh, God's doing something here, something special. And uh, this community needs the Lord, as uh, they all do. And so I want to encourage you, get, get, get behind Pastor Keeley and just go forward. Just, uh, just win the lost and love one another and uh, go forward in unity. Excited about what the Lord's going to do here. Again, just thankful uh, for Pastor Keeley giving us the opportunity. We will be with you on Wednesday. Going to stay through till Wednesday and excited about that. I think I'm teaching the couples class on Wednesday. And so looking forward to that and being with you. And uh, God's just good. Let me mention just a couple things on the resource table. And uh, so many of you have just taken advantage of that, and I appreciate you doing it. I hope it can be a help to you. I really do. A couple of small books on the table that you may be familiar with, and if not, I want to tell you about. There's a little book called Done and a little book called Paid in Full. And uh, some of you probably heard them, maybe given them out before. Uh, we have given them out at our church. And uh, what they are basically is they're books that tell people about Jesus. In fact, the book Done is all about the fact that religion says do this and do this and do this, but Christianity says Jesus has already done it. And uh, if you know somebody who's maybe in a false religious system, somebody who's confused about how to go to heaven, I encourage you to get that book. I think it's $3. Get that book and give it to them. There's been many a, people, many a person saved, I think, through reading that book. It's basically an extended tract is what I would call it, just a little more in-depth. Brother Kerry Schmidt, pastor's up in Connecticut, uh, wrote that book. It's just a great help. Paid in full would be the same way. And then one more book I do want to mention to you. Because this has been a tremendous help to me in my life, and that is the book Counterculture. It's a little yellow book out there. It's written by David Platt. You know, the cultural issues are always changing, aren't they? And it's just hard to have an answer uh, for many of them until we go to the Word of God, because God has the answer. And Counterculture is a book that I've used really as a textbook, uh, teaching different classes about cultural issues. And uh, it is a book that I love so much because it is written with, with great conviction, Okay, it's nothing soft about it. It goes to the Word of God and it says the truth, but it's also written with extreme compassion. And it's a book really to help you know how to help those that are struggling, those that are bound in sin, those that are dealing with issues. Uh, it gives you some answers and uh, just some stats, some figures and facts that you may not hear normally. And then it just uh, gives you the Word of God and then how to help them. And so it's been a book that I've used. It's been a tremendous help to us. And that book's called Counterculture. Just want to mention those to you. Well, if you got your Bible, I want you to take it and go to Judges chapter 2 tonight. Judges chapter number 2. I, this afternoon, got in the book of Judges. Church, I just tell you, the Word of God is just amazing, isn't it? And uh, this book right here, I just tell you, I'm pumped to preach tonight. I really am, because I've just been in the Word of God this afternoon and just, just been filled up, you know? And uh, so I'm really excited to preach to you. I want to say this. I'm a little scared to say it, but I, I think it will work uh, to my advantage in the end. We're going to be a little lengthy tonight, Okay. And if you want to leave, you can go ahead. I won't hold that against you, okay? We are going to be a little lengthy tonight because there's, there's a lot to this that we're going to unpack. But I want you to stay with me because I think there's some answers here. I, I, I have been studying the book of Judges and uh, the, these chapters. And it's just amazing chapters. In fact, look at Judges chapter 2 and verse number 10. And this is going to be our launch pad for tonight to introduce our theme. Notice Judges chapter 2 and verse number 10. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers... 
And there arose another generation after them, and notice these words here, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. I think these are some of the saddest words that you'll find in your Bible. There arose a generation who knew not the Lord. We talked this morning about losing things. Isn't it frustrating to misplace things and lose things? You know, you lose your car keys, you lose your cell phone. You ever done that before? Aren't you thankful now we got those watches that you can ding it, you know, we're all the time in our house ping it, you know, so we can find it. You know, uh, you, you lose, maybe if you ever uh, misplaced a child before, you know, and forgotten them. I was, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they were telling me that at some point in their family, I think it was a pastor, uh, they were going to go have a fellowship after service uh, with another family in the church. And I think they had three kids, and two of their kids were riding with this family uh, to their house. And they just assumed all their kids had done that. So they locked up the church, they shut the lights out, and they went to this family to fellowship. When they got there, they said, where's our daughter? And they said, what do you mean, where's your daughter? You know, didn't you bring her with you? And sure enough, their daughter had fallen asleep on the church pew or on the seats, and they had left her, they had lost her. I remember uh, several years ago, we had, uh, I got married uh, August 1st. I got that right. Okay, that's important. I got married August 1st, and uh, in October, I had a youth pastor near us and a buddy in our, our church, one of the deacons in our church, and said, hey, let's go down to the Gulf and let's go fishing. I'm a fishing nerd, you know, like I just love it. And so I said, sure, how about that? Only been married just a couple months, and here I am going on this fishing trip. I, I caught a, uh, I think it was a redfish that night, and I, I, you know how your hands get slimy, you know, after you catch a fish, and so I reached out and got in the water, you know, wipe, you know, wash my hands off a little bit, try to get that slime, that junk off my hands, and then I did like that to, uh, to get the water off, but when I did that, not only did the water come off, my wedding ring came off my finger, and went flying, I flung my wedding ring off, it hit the edge of the boat, and thank the Lord, it didn't bounce out of the boat, it bounced back into the boat. I thought, my goodness, can you imagine? I've been married a few months, and I go on this trip. I can't lose my wedding ring, you know? And, uh, but I was thankful to regain that. Boy, it's a good feeling when you regain what you lost, isn't it? It's a good feeling. Tonight, church, I want to talk to you about regaining a lost generation. A lost generation. And I'll be honest with you. For the first little bit of this message, it's going to be a little depressing. It's going to be a little downhearted, but I want you to stay with me because there is hope in the Word of God, okay? There is hope for a lost generation. You know, I can understand how you can lose your car keys. When you have kids, I understand how you lose anything. You know, I mean, it's just amazing how things get misplaced. How do you lose a generation? How do you lose a generation? How do you come, especially where Israel is in their history? They've now come into the promised land. They've come out of bondage in Egypt, across the Red Sea, been given the Ten Commandments. Finally, after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, they're back into the promised land, and it's been divided up. And yet, just a short while later, there rises a generation that does not know God? How does that even happen? I tell you, church, you look at our generation that's coming up now. It is a lost generation. It's a generation that does not know God. And how does that happen? Well, I want you to look at Judges chapter 2 and let's see how that happens. How do you lose a generation? Well, notice first of all that a generation is lost when the previous generation fails to completely obey God. Notice verse number 1, Judges chapter 2 and verse 1. And we're going to walk through this chapter together. In fact, we're going to walk through a lot of this book together tonight. Notice Judges chapter 2 verse 1. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
Verse 2, And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Here was God's deal, God's agreement with his people. When you come into Canaan land, the promised land, when you finally get there, I want you to eradicate the inhabitants. I want you to drive them out. Don't mess with them. They don't worship the same God. They have idols. They're idolaters. They're fornicators. I want you to drive them out. But what you find in Judges chapter 1 is that again and again and again, Israel failed to obey God. In fact, notice Judges chapter 1 and verse 21. And the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites that inhabited Jerusalem. God said, get them out. They didn't. Notice verse 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshan and her towns. Notice verse 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Notice verse 29, neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Ketron, nor the inhabitants of of Nehalal. Notice verse 31, neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of of Echo. Notice verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. Seven times in chapter 1 we read, Not only did they not drive them out, when you read those words, here's what you need to see. They directly disobeyed God. I tell you, when I think about the generation that is coming up and how they're lost, I think it's not even their fault. Because there's been generations, my generation, even prior generations that have failed to completely obey God. I thought of Saul when I think of obedience. You know, Saul, he started well, didn't he? And God gives them this command, again, a similar command. I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to wipe everything out. These are pagans. These these people have rejected me, and and, and they're wicked. I want you to kill everything. But what does Saul do? He fails to obey God, and the prophet comes to him, Samuel, and he says, Hath the Lord as great delight in sacrifices as in obedience? A generation is lost when the previous generation fails to completely obey God. Notice verse number 3 in Judges chapter 2. And we see here, secondly, that a generation is lost when the previous generation fails to completely commit to God. Notice verse 3. Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. You know what, God? He knew all along, if you leave these people here, you'll want their gods. If you leave these people here, you'll want their high places. You know, church, this is exactly what happened, isn't it? God knew. Isn't it amazing how he knows and it's for us? He knows. If that Israel comes across, uh, comes out of Egypt, and and, and, and Moses goes up into the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and what do they immediately want? A golden calf. Something they can see to worship. God knew his people. In fact, take your Bible. If you're in Judges chapter 2, look at Judges chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. And here it is. It's played out exactly what God said. They did not obey, and because they did not obey, they never completely committed. Notice verse number 5. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam. And the groves, notice chapter 8, skip on over there, Judges chapter 8, and notice verse number 33, we see it repeated here again, Judges chapter 8, verse 33, and it came to pass as soon as Gideon was dead, we're going to talk about him in a minute, he's one of those judges, that the children of Israel turned again and went a-whoring after Balaam and made Baal, Baareth, their God. 
They want a new God. Notice Judges chapter 10 and verse number 6. Judges chapter 10 and verse 6. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam and Ashtaroth and the gods of Syria and the gods of Zidon and the gods of Moab and the gods of the children of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines and forsook the Lord and served not him. It's amazing, church. Exactly what God said, if you don't drive them out, you're going to struggle. And so we see this constant battle. The book of Judges is really a sad book. God judges his people. He raises up a man, even a woman in Deborah. They come back to God, but a short while later, they go whoring after other gods. I mean, it's not just Israel, church. When I think about America, I think about where we are, the blessings that God has given us, and how quickly we turn to other gods, how quickly we turn to ourselves. The generation is lost when the previous generation fails to completely commit to God. Notice the third reason a generation is lost. Go back to Judges chapter 2 and look again at verse 10. And we see that a generation is lost when the previous generation fails to teach the next generation. Notice verse number 10. There arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord. Why didn't they know him? Because they hadn't been taught. In fact, I don't want you to take your Bible and go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Church, this is amazing. God always has a plan. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God gave his people a plan so that each generation would know him. The boys and girls, the the grandchildren, the sons and daughters, they would know God. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 is God's plan. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 6. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Notice verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. And it shall be when the Lord thy God shall have brought thee into the land which he sware unto thy fathers. This is the land they're in now. This is the land he's talking about. When he brings them there, which he swear to thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give thee great and goodly cities which thou buildest not, and houses full of all good things which thou fillest not, and wells dig which thou diggest not, vineyards and olive trees which thou plantest not, when thou shalt have eaten and be full, then beware, lest thou forget the Lord, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Isn't it amazing? Here was God's plan, teach your children, not just teach them, I mean teach them all the time, teach them when they wake up, teach them as you walk, as you're going about your day, teach them when they go down. Take the word of God, put it on your walls, put it on your doorpost, put it on your forehead. I mean the word of God was to be everywhere. Years before they were ever to come in this land, God gave a plan so there would never be a generation that would arise that knew not the Lord. Isn't that amazing? God had a plan. And here it is, teach your kids, teach your grandkids so that they'll know God. But apparently here's a generation who failed to follow that plan. Notice the last reason that a generation is lost. A generation is lost when a previous generation fails to completely obey God. When a previous generation fails to completely commit to God. When a previous generation fails to teach the next generation, notice the last reason. Back in Judges chapter number 2, we see again in that verse that a generation is lost when the previous generation fails to see God work in their generation. Notice verse 10. Not only did they not know the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. I have no doubt these boys and girls, as they grew up, that their mom and their dad and even their grandmother and grandfather told them about, about Egypt, about the Red Sea. They told them about Jericho. Man, we thought Joshua had lost his mind. 
you kidding me? Walk around the walls, yell, and they're going to come. Man, we remember that. We remember all these things, but guess what? They'd never seen it. They'd heard about when the church was built. They'd never seen it. They'd heard about the great revivals, but they'd never seen it. And I can imagine, church, that this generation, yeah, they had heard about those things, but maybe they started wondering things like this. Does God really do that anymore? Is God really able to build His church? Is God really able to send great revivals? Is God really able to to eradicate our enemies? Is God able to do those things? Because, yeah, Grandma and Grandpa, they talk about it, but we've never seen those things. We've never seen a God like that. They didn't know His works. A couple of generations ago in the United States of America, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and 80s, and some of you are like, yeah, I lived through them. I remember them, right? There's a great sweeping spiritual movement of God in this country, wasn't there? You think about it, in the 1970s, there's a church in Indiana, First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana, had the largest Sunday school of any church in the world. In the 1980s, Highland Park Baptist Church, in the direction of Pastor Lee Robertson, Independent Baptist Church boasted some 57,000 members. Dr. Lee Robertson started his school temple and they were sending out young men and young women all around the world. But even in the Chattanooga area, they were sending out men to start these chapels and pastor these chapels. And God was just doing a great work, an incredible thing in the 19, uh, in the 80s and 70s. In those, those generations, there were men like Lester Roloff. In Texas, and Bill Rice, and Dr. Bob Jones Sr., and Tom Malone, and Adrian Rogers, and I mean, we could just go on and on. These great men of God who were starting great movements and traveling the country. I even think of the days of Billy Graham where thousands would pack into a football stadium or out in L.A. Thousands come to hear the man of God, hear the preacher. In the late 70s, a movement was founded by Dr. Jerry Falwell called the Moral Majority. You remember that? This moral majority was to influence politics, influence leaders in our country. And you know, there was even a day where even if you didn't go to church, and even if you weren't a quote-unquote just born-again Christian, there was some sense of morality. There was some sense of right. I've heard my granddad talk about, you know, knocking on doors in those days, and he'd walk into somebody's house and be visiting with them, and somebody would take their beer and they'd hide it when the preacher came in. Like there was just this sense of, you know, we may not do right, but we know what right is. There was a time when even those who maybe weren't fully committed at least didn't do certain things or knew they were wrong. Creation, prayer, and preaching were all allowed in public education. My granddad grew up in a a public school, and he he tells me of a day when in a public school there were preachers. They would have chapel. I can't even fathom that day. But they would have a local minister, different denominations. A local minister would come in and they would give the gospel. They would preach to these boys and girls, these high schoolers and junior hires, even in public education. It's a great movement of God in our country. My question is, what happened? Why are we in decline? Why are we struggling? Well, you know the truth. In the 1960s, they kicked prayer and Bible out of schools, or at least tried to. June 25th of 1962, the United Supreme Court decided that prayer in schools violated the First Amendment because it was an establishment of religion. In 1963, for similar reasons, they banned Bible readings in schools. Organizations like the National Association of Evangelicals and the magazine Christianity Today actually supported these decisions for kicking God, kicking Bible and prayer reading out of schools. And the problem was church and I know everybody has to make their own decisions. The problem with public education is that it became partial education. You can't teach science without the Bible. You can't teach history without the Bible. You sure enough can't teach morality without the Bible. 
and we stop telling kids who they, where they came from and why they're here and that there's a God who loves them and has a purpose for them. With the kicking out of creation came evolution. The 1960s, laws began being abolished. You realize there was a point in time in our country where it was illegal to teach evolution in in education. And and those laws began to be abolished and instead replaced with laws that made it illegal to teach creation. That's something. We started telling kids that that they're they're a product of chance, a product of of time. In the 1960s, Nathaniel Brandon began promoting a psychological movement called the self-esteem movement. Nobody deserves to lose. Everybody deserves to win. We start keeping score, right? Even in upwards, you can't keep score in those times. Everybody is entitled to their self-esteem. In the mid-90s, a book was published called The Gendered Society. It proposed that there was a, a distinction between biological sex and gender. Biology being the way that you were born. Gender being the way that you perceive that you were born. Articles were published declaring that heterosexuality is actually not natural. And then in 2015, and many of us remember, the United States Supreme Court struck down a state ban uh, across the board on same-sex marriage, legalizing it in all 50 states. That's previous generations. My question is, what's happening to the generation right now that's being trained, that's being raised up? What's happened to the boys and girls in elementary school and junior high and high school? Because i got a burden for them. I hope you do. What's happening to them? Well, first of all, they don't know where they come from or why they're here. It's amazing. They're told to pick their gender. Literally, what do you feel like? I mean, you, you read the stories like I do, the articles that in early elementary, they're teaching this, they're educating, this is the way. They're told to love whoever they want to. They're educated through sex education, not how to be moral, but how to most safely be immoral. We don't teach abstinence anymore. It's not the way. We just teach how to safely be immoral. We're told that truth is relative. It's whatever you think it is. Isn't it something that even in colleges and and in college, higher education, there are professors who are teaching that truth is what you think it is. It's what you want it to be. You can believe something totally the opposite of what I believe, and we can both be right. Truth is relative. It's what they're taught. It's what these kids are being told. They're told to be tolerant of all views because each person is entitled to their own truth. Just let them be. They're educated and seduced through media and entertainment that life is to be lived in the way that brings you the most happiness and pleasure. And my question is, they're being taught this. What are the results of that? Well, notice back in Judges chapter 2, what were the results of this generation being lost? What were the results of this generation that wasn't taught about God and this generation that didn't see God and didn't see His movement? What was the result? Well, notice verse number 11. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Church, it ought to be no wonder that our world is in such a mess. They didn't know better. They didn't know right. And so they did evil. In fact, over and over and over again in in this book, you'll see those words. Notice chapter 3 and verse 12. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Notice, and the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. Notice chapter 4 and verse 1. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Skip on over to chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. In verse number 1, you find the same thing. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. And then notice the last chapter, and boy, these are some sad words. Notice Judges chapter 21, and verse number 25, and I think this describes the generation that's coming up. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is relative truth. In fact, that thought hit me as I was reading these scriptures that relative truth is not a new idea. That's exactly what these people believe. There was no king. There was no judge. There was no ruler. So you know what they said? You just do what you feel like's right. 
And you do what you feel like, right? We'll leave you alone, and you leave us alone, and we'll be tolerant of each other. That's exactly where we are today. They did evil. They tell us in the United States that every 24 hours, 1,000 unwed teens become pregnant, 500 adolescents begin using drugs, and six youths commit suicide every 24 hours in the United States. They say that something like 1,748 women on average in the U.S. abort their own baby every day. They say in the United States that 41% of high school students, this was as of 2015, 41%, four out of every 10 high school students reported having sexual relations. In fact, on WebMD, it says that almost all Americans have sex before marriage. In fact, the statistic in the United States that I've seen is something like 95%. They say that in 2019, a survey said 70 million people ages 12 to 20 reported that they drank alcohol beyond just a few sips in the past month. I'm talking about teenagers. These are people that it's illegal to do that for. Suicide in the United States is the second leading cause of death amongst teenagers. Second leading cause of death. In fact, suicide rates increased 33% between 1999 and 2019. Here's a generation, they don't know God, so what do they do? They do what they want. They do evil. Notice what else is a result of losing a generation. Not only do they do evil, but notice verse 12. Judges chapter 2 and verse 12, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. What do they do? They left God. They didn't know him. They hadn't been taught about him. They didn't know what was right. They didn't know who he was. They hadn't seen him work, so why did they need him? So they left him. In fact, you read those words again and again in this book. They forsook the Lord. They went after other gods. 66% of American young adults ages 18 to 22 who attended church for at least a year as a teen also dropped out of church for at least a year. Church, I'm just going to tell you, I, I've been privileged to grow up in a wonderful church. Many godly families that are still in our church that I've known for decades. And I'm telling you, I could count, I, I may struggle on two hands to count the kids that I grew up with in church. Their parents still in our church today, they're in a church of any kind today. I mean, the numbers are staggering. I'll be honest, the numbers are scary. How many kids grow up in church and grow up in a Christian school, and when they graduate, walk away to not come back? They left God. They didn't need Him. They hadn't been taught about him. They hadn't seen him. Notice a third thing. They face the judgment of God. What happens to a generation that doesn't know God? Well, they face his judgment. Notice verse number 13. And they forsook the Lord to serve Baal and Ashtaroth, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of spoilers that they spoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them. And they were greatly distressed. Church, can I just tell you, America's been blessed by God in amazing ways, but we cannot escape the judgment of God. God is just. He'll do right, and we're not somebody special, okay? We're not his chosen people. That's Israel. And notice how he dealt with them. And how can we not think that he'll deal with us? They face the judgment of God. And I want to give you a fourth thought, and I actually added this this afternoon. And here's the fourth thought. What happens to a generation that doesn't know God? Well, they do evil, and they leave God, and they face the judgment of God. But boy, you read the rest of this book, and here's what you find out happens. They self-destruct. Take your Bible go to chapter 17. We can't read this for sake of time. I wish I could. I was reading these chapters this afternoon, and I thought, this is unbelievable. This generation that does not know God and they're constantly running from God and they're worshiping other gods and they're doing evil and all these things. You get to chapter 17 and you read to the end of this book and it is absolute chaos. It is Israel literally self-destructing. In chapter 17 you read of a man named Micah whose mother basically helps him start a false religion. It's amazing. You read this and you think, what, what kind of mom would do that? But she gives him this money 
that he helps her recover, and she gives him this money, and he buys it. He, she, she, she purchases a false god for him, and he sets up shop. He gets a priest to come in and help him with his false religion. And the end of that chapter, chapter 17, he literally thinks he's going to have the blessing of God because he's got a Levite who's a priest for him. You read on to chapter 18, and then you come to chapter 19, and what you find out in chapter 19 is this horrible sin. I mean, it's almost unthinkable, this, this sin that happened in this town called, called, called Gibeah. This, this man from one of the tribes of Israel comes into Benjamin's territory. He comes into Gibeah, and, and these men surround his town, and they say, uh, give us this man. We want to sexually abuse him. And the man who's housing him, he says, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. He, I've invited him in, and so instead, take his concubine. Take this woman. They take her, they abuse her, they kill her. And I can't explain it to you, but this man in his anger and his righteous indignation takes her, divides her literally in 12 pieces and sends her out to the tribes of Israel. You keep reading, you come to chapter number 20, you know what you start reading? Civil war. Literally. The tribe of Benjamin, uh, Benjamin is fighting against these other tribes. And when you do the math, you find out that over 65,000 people die. 65,000 of Benjamin and of these other tribes is Israel versus Benjamin. It's, it's just an incredible story. Benjamin wins two of the battles, and then finally Israel totally wipes out Benjamin. In fact, the Bible says that Benjamin had 26,000 troops, and of those 26,000, 25,000 and 100 of them die. They're self-destructing. You know, church, the saddest thing, when I look at our, our country, I'm so burdened because we're killing ourselves. I told you a moment ago, the second leading cause of death amongst teenagers is suicide. The first funeral that I preached uh, in my life was for a 13-year-old teen in my youth group who took his own life. I got so angry. I, after I heard that, I thought, 13 years old? I mean, that wasn't even a thought on my mind when I was 13 years old. But we've told these kids, you have no purpose. You don't know where you came from. You don't know what your purpose is in life. You're just an animal. You're just evolved. You just live for yourself. You just have pleasure. We're destroying our own selves. Isn't it amazing that when we turn on the news and we hear about a shooting nowadays or a killing, it almost doesn't phase us because it's just normal. Isn't that true? We live in Birmingham. It's a dangerous place. and It's like you know when you hear about somebody getting shot, you just think, well, that's just the way it is. We're literally killing ourselves. We're destroying ourselves. You know, it's amazing to me that what they don't tell you about homosexuality, one of the saddest things about it to me is that the life expectancy for someone practicing homosexuality, you go look at the statistics, the life expectancy for a homosexual versus someone who's living a heterosexual or just a single lifestyle is about half. It's cut in about half. You don't hear that on the news today, do you? We're killing ourselves. This is what happens when a generation does not know God. What we're seeing around us, guys, is exactly what we read in the book of Judges. It's nothing new. And so my question tonight is, how do we get them back? Because as much to me as the book of Judges is about a people who leave God, I think it's also about a God who wanted them back. It's about a God who had a plan. This book is not all destruction. This book is not all just sad. In fact, turn to verse number 16, Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. I love this. Nevertheless, boy, let me thank God for that word for just a moment. We have read in chapter 1 and chapter 2, nothing but bad. They didn't know God. They did evil. They forsook the Lord. God was going to judge them. Nevertheless, despite all that, notice verse 16, the Lord raised up judges. Church, God had a plan. God had a plan to get his people back. God had a plan to pursue them and go after them. How do you regain a generation? How do we as Pembroke Pines, uh, uh, a Baptist church in Pembroke Pines, Florida, how do we reach a generation that doesn't know God? How do we reach a generation that's never seen God? 
never seen his works. How do we reach that generation? Number one, we teach them the truth of the word of God. You know what God's plan? God's plan was to raise up judges who would stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. God's plan was to raise up prophets who would stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. You turn to the New Testament, God's plan was to raise up disciples who would stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. I'm just telling you, in the 21st century, God's plan is still to raise up men and women who will stand and say, Thus saith the Lord. Who will turn to kids who don't have a clue and say, Let me tell you, God has a better way. God has a better plan for your life. God has a purpose. God created you. You're special. You're not just a number. You're not just a product of chance. God created you. There's a soul in you. God has a plan for your life. How do you reach a generation that does not know God? You tell them the truth. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you what, church? Free. Praise God. When I look at this generation, I see bondage. I see people that are trapped, and I think, boy, they need to be set free. And it's the truth that sets them free. How do we teach them the truth? Number one, we proclaim it. On every hand, we teach them the truth. Can I encourage the parents in the room to give due diligence to teaching your children the Word of God? Teach them science, teach them history, teach them all those things, but more than anything, if they miss all those things, make sure they don't miss the Word of God. How many grandparents in the room tonight? Just curious, how many grandparents? You put your hands down. Grandparents, can I plead with you tonight? Teach your grandkids the Word of God. When an opportunity arises to say, hey, listen, let me tell you. Let me tell you about when Grandpa found Jesus. Let me tell you about how my life got changed. Teach them the truth of the Word of God. I was preaching some time ago in Canada. I've had the opportunity to preach several times virtually in Canada. And I was preaching, and I was preaching about how to help prodigals find revival. And the, the message wasn't so much for the prodigal as it was for us who have prodigals in our life, children who've gone astray, grandchildren who've gone astray, a brother, a sister, somebody who's gone astray. And when I got done with the message, the pastor I was preaching for, he said, church, he said, we need to pray for, uh, for this missionary. He called his name. I thought, boy, I know that missionary. Our church supports that missionary. He said his son, who was serving Jesus with him on the mission field, came to a Bible college, a good college, Pensacola Christian College, and he said his son has now left the faith and is, wants nothing to do with it. He then said, pray for this man. He named an evangelist that I'd heard of. And he said, here's an evangelist that loves Jesus and his son loved the Lord. And his son has since walked away from the faith. Well, it's nothing to do with it. I walked out of their bird and I went to my wife and I said, honey, I said, we're going to fight for our kids. Can I encourage you parents with everything that is in you, teach your kids the word of God. You know what, when these boys and girls come into your church and they don't have a mom and dad that teaches them the word of God, you do it. Boy, all of us can find someone. You may not have kids, but we could find someone, somebody on your street, somebody at the local school down, down the way and find somebody. I was recently, I got an email from a, a, a minister in the state of Michigan, and they're begging to have somebody. It's a law in the state of Michigan. They have to allow Bible clubs in their public schools. But they don't have anybody to go in and do it. And they're literally begging, give us somebody, anybody. You'll have more opportunities than you could ever uh, want to come into these schools and teach these kids the Bible. I'm telling you, we must give due diligence to proclaiming the word of God. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. It's interesting. The communist leader, Lenin, understood the power of teaching children. He said this, he said, give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. A communist. He understood the power of indoctrinating, of teaching children. But we must get them while they're young. How do you teach the truths of the Word of God? Will you proclaim them? And then I want to say this, you personally live them. 
You know what this lost generation was looking for, this generation that did not know God, this generation that hadn't seen God work, you know what they were looking for? Something real. Something that worked. I can't tell you the power of watching a Christian thrive. Watching a Christian live out the word of God in their life. A marriage that's loving and what it ought to be. And a family that is doing what it should be. Personally live the word. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, the lost people. That whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they might by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. Dr. Leonard Ravenhill was a great revivalist, and he said this, The world is not waiting for a new definition of the gospel, but for a new demonstration of the power of the gospel. We're so subnormal these days that the normal New Testament experience seems abnormal. He went on to say this, A blazing bush drew Moses, and a blazing church will attract the world, so that from its midst they will hear the voice of the living God. You know what your neighbor needs? He needs to see a Christian who doesn't just speak it, but they live it. You know what your coworker needs? They need to see someone that maybe even when you're made fun of, you're, you're, you're torn down for your faith, that you just stand with a sweet spirit and live it out. Something real. How many boys and girls have walked away from their faith because they saw mom and dad be one way in church and, and maybe even grandma or grandpa be one way in church, but when they went home it was totally different. And they needed to see something real. You know, for our kids, you know, we, we, we want what they see on the pulpit and what they see in the church to be what they get when they're at home. Even in 45 foot of an RV, they needed something real. So we teach them the truth of the Word of God. How do you regain a lost generation? Notice, secondly, not only do you teach them the truth of the Word of God, but you must trust in God to do the work. Notice verse number 17. So God raises up these judges, and notice what happens, verse 17. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges. Isn't that interesting? They wouldn't listen. But they went a whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised them up, judges, notice these words, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. Here's kind of, when I read these verses, here's kind of the picture I get. It's like the judge stands up and nobody wants to listen. And they're preaching. I mean, they're giving it to them straight. The Word of God, nobody wants to listen. And it's kind of like this. It's kind of like just God just moves in and everything changes. The Holy Spirit just steps in and everything changes. Can I just tell you, people don't want to listen, do they? They call us crazy sometimes. But you know what? When God steps in, everything changes. Church, how do you win? How do you regain a lost generation? I'm just going to tell you that we can't, but God can God can't. Is anything too hard for God? With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We trust in God to do the work. He does it by His power. I don't have time tonight. I wish I did. But Judges chapter 7 is the story of Gideon. Gideon comes and he's got what? Is it 32,000 soldiers? And what does God say? Gideon, that's too many. And here's why. Because Gideon, if you take those 32,000 and you whip up on these Moabites, here's what you're going to say. Look what we did. So Gideon, we're going to cut it down. You tell these men, hey, anybody that's afraid, go home. That would have been me. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I was more of a runner than a fighter. And, uh, and, 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 and you tell them, if they're afraid, go home. So he's left with fewer. What does he say? Gideon, it's too many. Take them down to the brook and I want you to give them a test. I want you to, the ones that bend over and they just drink out of the water, they're out. But the ones that lap up the water with their hand, they're in. And let me tell you how the Veggie Tale story puts it, all right? They go and they drink slushies. And the ones that get brain freezes, they're out. 
but the ones that don't get brain freezes, they're in. Okay, now that's not in the Bible, but that is exactly how VeggieTales, I've seen it, okay? And so Gideon goes from 32,000 to 300. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He takes those 300, he divides them in three companies. They don't have bazookas. They don't have tanks. They don't even have weapons that they would have had. He says, take trumpets. Well, that's a fierce weapon, right? Take, a, take pictures, take, 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 take lanterns, and, and take your voice and yell. And God defeats them. Why? Why did God do it that way? Church, could God have done it with 32,000? But why did God use 300? Because everybody would know this is by God's power and God's power alone. Church, I'm just going to tell you, God uses small things like Bible Baptist Church and Pembroke Pines to do things only he can do. And it's by his power. God has to do the work. But can I tell you, when God does the work, it's not only by his power, but it's in his timing. And his timing is not always ours. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Notice this verse. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth, and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. I can't tell you how God works. It's a mystery to me, but I do know that he does work. And it's in his timing. It's in his way. Boy, if it were up to me, I'd say, let's have revival now. Let's turn this country around. But you know what? It's in God's timing. It's in his way. But church, don't you know I believe he'll do it? Don't you know tonight that for my kids and for my grandkids, I believe he'll do it? For this generation, they got to know God. They got to see him. And God's got to do it. God's got to do the work. Oh, the children of Israel, they couldn't go across the Red Sea, but God could make a way. The children of Israel, they couldn't tear Jericho's walls down, but God could do it. Good night. They couldn't even provide food for themselves in the wilderness, but God sure enough could do it and even have Walmart. But he could do it. We look at this generation. It feels hopeless, doesn't it? Maybe some of you older folks, you know, you look at this younger generation, you're just frustrated. I don't blame you. You think, boy, they're messing up everything that we fought and died for, everything that we, 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 we've given our lives to, they're messing up. Can I just tell you, it's not their fault. Many of them have been taught. So don't give up on them. God can still do it. We trust in God to do the work. And let me give you a third thought. How do you regain a lost generation? Well, you tell them the truth of the word, and you trust in God to do the work. But notice thirdly, this is hard, but you testify in trials of a faith that works. Notice verse number 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them, they cease not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. But notice verse 20, what God is going to do through these trials. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because that this people hath transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died that through them I may prove Israel, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered he them into the hand of Joshua. Notice even chapter 3 and verse 1. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to prove Israel by them as many of Israel as had not known the wars of Canaan. In other words, God said, you know what? I'm going to leave these nations. If you don't drive them out, I'm not going to do it because by those nations I'm going to prove you. By those nations, I'm going to test your heart. Church, can I tell you that 
in this scripture and really in other places in the Bible, there's a promise of persecution, isn't there? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Shall suffer persecution. Can I just tell you that is not one of my favorite promises in the Bible? <laughs> That's not one that I'm just get up and just thank God for this promise, but it is in the Bible, isn't it? 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. In other words, don't think it strange. Don't think it odd when we walk through trials. But notice, not only in the Bible is there a promise of persecution, but thank God there is a proving in persecution. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials or storms or difficulties, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Church, I can't explain it to you. But isn't it amazing how when a godly person walks through a trial, God gives them a platform to glorify God. Let me give you some Bible illustrations of that. Number one would be Joseph, sold by his brothers. I mean, me and my brothers, my brother, we've had some tips, but I've never wanted to sell them on eBay, okay, or anything like that. He's sold by his brothers. He's lied about. He's thrown in prison. But through that difficulty, God allows him to be elevated. I mean, brought up and saved the world. I think of Daniel. Daniel has to go through a fire, so that, excuse me, through the lion's den. And on the other side of that lion's den, a pagan king, Darius, turns to his people and said, listen, there's no God like that God. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they literally go through a fiery furnace. And on the other side of that fiery furnace, here's this platform. Listen, it's not us, it's God. God does that through trials. In fact, take your Bible, turn one more place with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this will be our last passage tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, I don't know of a Christian in the Bible outside of Jesus Christ that suffered the way that Paul did. I mean, Paul all the time, you know, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked. You know, I mean, just, it's just unbelievable. But notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what Paul said about those trials that he went through. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Why, Paul, why? Notice that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. In other words, Paul said, through these persecutions, through these this, this troubles and these things we go through, we show the life of Jesus Christ. We manifest Jesus Christ. Notice verse 12. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We have in the same spirit of faith, according as it is written, I believe, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe, and therefore speak, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and, and shall present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. And then notice these final three verses here. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction. Boy, those are tough words to swallow when you think about what Paul went through. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You know what Paul said? You see the beating. You see the trial. You see the difficulty. But what you need to see, and you can't see it physically necessarily, is what God is doing for eternal purposes. That's what we talked about this morning. I don't always understand why Christians go through trials. You, you ever struggle with that? I don't always understand why God allows certain things, but here's what I do know, and I do love, and I stand amazed at how when Christians walk through those trials, they have a joy unspeakable and full of glory, a peace that passes all understanding. And it's not saying it's not difficult, 
But in the midst of that trial, they can turn to a lost and dying world and say, God is still good. God is still in control. And God gives them a platform. So a Chinese pastor had been beaten for his faith. And he stood up sometime later and he gave this testimony. I'll be honest, church, I'm just convicted by this. He said, you've all heard of my sufferings during the past few months. And I wish to say that these sufferings were very slight. It was easy to endure pain when I could feel that I bore it for Jesus Christ. It's wonderful and I cannot explain it. When attacked by the robbers and beaten almost to death, I felt no pain. Their blows did not seem to hurt me at all. Everything was bright and glorious. Heaven seemed to open. And I thought I saw Jesus waiting to receive me. It was beautiful. I have no words to describe it. Since that time I seem to be a new man, I now know what it is to love not the world. My affections are set on things above. Persecutions trouble me not. I forget all my sorrows when I think of Jesus. I call nothing on earth my own. And then notice what he said. He said, I find that times of trial are best for me. When all is quiet and prosperous, I grow careless and yield to temptation. But when persecutions come, then I fly to Christ. The fiercer the trial, the better it is for my soul. And church, I'll be honest with you. I'm not so sure that what a generation that does not know God, what it may take for them to see God be real is for his church to walk through some fiery trials. For believers to go through some things. And even in those things, we say, you know what? We don't have just a good time Christianity. We don't just have a, you know, when it's right and when it's good, we're, we're, we're true and faithful. We have a God on the mountaintops and a God in the valley. Several years ago, a couple years ago, a great pastor in our state. In fact, I think he's one of the heroes of the state of Alabama. One of the spiritual heroes of the state of Alabama. A man by the name of Pastor Shane Lewis contracted leukemia. He's about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes from us. I've been good friends with his children for quite some time. His sons are a little younger than me, and I've tried to kind of encourage them and pray for them and text them. He tried to leukemia, and it was amazing because his church got behind him. You know, as he was going to those treatments, they would get signs, and they would stand along the roadway, and this whole community knew what was going on. Somerville, Alabama, Decatur, the area, this whole community knew what was going on. This pastor's walking through this fiery trial. But I was amazed to watch his family because they weren't down in the gloom, you know, in the, in the pit of despair. And, and they weren't just, you know, just, just down and discouraged. They were praising the Lord. He was still preaching. He put out videos on Facebook about God's goodness and just how faithful the Lord was. June 21st of last year, he passed away. Cancer had gone in remission for some time, and he was doing really well, and then it came back with a vengeance, and it took his life. Last week, I think it was last week or perhaps the week before, I, I follow his wife on, uh, on Facebook, and she posts things on there. And she put up a picture of his tombstone. His tombstone just got delivered. It took him a while because of a special order, and then she put a, an audio clip on there of Brother Shane Lewis preaching the week before he died. He, he could be in church. He was preaching, and he told the church what he had told his son about exactly how he wanted his tombstone. She put that picture up and it had his name, had his dates, when he was born and when he died. And then as big, just about as big as you could on that, on that black colored tombstone in white letters, it said, only God. And he talked about in that audio clip as I listened to him. He talked about that audio clip that as people came down that road in Somerville, Alabama, as people would drive by, even in his death, he wanted people to look at that tombstone and see only God. He wanted in his death people to see that tombstone and think about a God. I'm telling you, church, it may be persecution, it may be trials, but what a lost generation, a dying generation needs is a Christian who's real. 
A Christian that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of when the government says you can't do this and you can't do that, says, you know what? We're going to obey God rather than man, but we're going to do it with the right spirit, with a sweet spirit, with the love of God in our hearts and in our eyes. Testify through trials of a faith that works. Church, I hope you're burdened tonight for this generation that's coming up. I'm so burdened for them. Can I tell you, there's hope for them. When you read this book here, it's about a God who redeems, a God who has a plan, and his plan still works, church. But what are we going to do? How, how do we reach this generation? How do we reach this community? How do you reach your grandkids and your kids that don't know God? Well, number one, you tell them the truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Speaking the truth in love, not only do you tell them the truth, but you trust in God to do the work. May we get on our knees and pray like we never have before. God, reach this generation. God, help our church. Help my grandkids, help my kids to grow up and not walk away from God, but may they know Jesus Christ. Trust in God. And thirdly, testify in trials of a faith that works. Church, God has a plan to regain a lost generation. Can I encourage you with this tonight? And we're done. Please don't walk out of this room discouraged. I wasn't my heart tonight. I don't want to be that teacher, you know, that preacher. You go home and you just think there's no hope. When I read this book, I think this is a God who gives, gives us hope. There's a plan. As wicked as those people were, God had a plan to get them back. Again and again and again and again. God has a plan to regain a lost generation. Jesus, we love you tonight. God, thank you for your word. God, I can't tell you how this afternoon I was just encouraged, Lord, getting in your word, just getting this book, and your word's so good. Lord, it's so amazing, and I thank you, Lord, the Holy Spirit is ministering to me today, and I thank you for that. God, I pray for my kids. Lord, I don't want them to be that generation that doesn't know God. I pray for the kids of this church and the grandkids. Lord, many hands went up. I'm a grandparent. I pray for these grandkids. God, may they not be that generation that doesn't know God. Lord, we look around us, and sometimes it is frustrating. Sometimes it's just it's hard not to get mad, Lord, at what politicians do and, and the sin that goes on and is publicized and celebrated even. But God, may we look with compassion in our eyes, with pity, Lord, and say, this is a generation that doesn't know better. This is a generation that many of them, they've never been taught the truth. They, they don't know another way. And Father, may we go after them. May we do everything we can to teach the kids in this area the Word of God. May we do everything we can to teach our kids and our grandkids and our nieces. And Lord, everyone that we can to teach them the truth of the Word of God. May we have friends that have gone away from the Lord. And may we reach them with the truth. God, we're going to trust in you to do the work. We just admit to you tonight, God, we cannot do it. It's just too daunting of a task. you got to do it. It's by your power. It's in your timing. But, Lord, we just declare tonight that you're able. We still believe. We've not given up. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, we know that while this is impossible with man, God, it is possible with you. And, Father, we declare tonight that through the trials and the persecution that will come, that is promised, Lord, difficulties come to us all. Father, we want to have a faith that works. We want to have a faith that shows a lost world, a faith that shows skeptics and doubters that this is real. This is bring you through the fire kind of faith. This is not just the mountaintop faith, but in the deepest valleys we have a shepherd that walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And Father, even in those trials, give us a platform to speak the name of Jesus. God, I don't know what's going to come to this church and to many churches in the States, but whatever comes, Father, may we stand with a truth and with a Faith that's real and it works. Father, we want to see a lost generation come back to you. Forgive us for our faults. Forgive us for our failures. But, Father, may we relentlessly pursue this generation. And God, do a work in their hearts. Lord, speak to our hearts tonight. I pray that you'd encourage your people, that you challenge your people, that there is hope tonight, that there is much work to be done, and we must pursue this generation. 
Father, you have a purpose, you have a plan for them. May we go after them. Father, we love you. Do your work in our hearts and lives tonight. With our heads bowed, eyes closed, church, may we do business with God tonight. Maybe get on our knees and pray for our kids tonight. Maybe get on our knees and pray for our grandkids tonight. Maybe get on our knees and pray for the local public school down the way who's filled with kids. They're not being taught the truth. They don't know any better. As the piano plays tonight, can we just do business with God? Just plead with God. God, we want to regain a lost generation. There's hope tonight. God has a plan. That's why this whole book is about judges, His people. May we plead with God tonight. May we see a lost generation regained.